this is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Don't be seated yet. Don't be seated. We're going to read Daniel chapter 10 together this morning. Daniel chapter 10, the whole chapter. Um, So let's turn in your word. This will be on the screen as well. So Daniel chapter 10. And read this together. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the back on the bank of the great river. I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from a paths around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam, like the gleam of our burnished bronze and the sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see it. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled and fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone with this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fear, fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Behold, a man touched me, set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. Stand upright, for I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken these things to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said, Fear not, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before the Lord, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I was left here with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the later days. For this vision is for the days yet to come. When, we, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face to the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of men touched my lips and opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O Lord, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no, no strength remains in me and no breath left in me. And again, having, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And he said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will turn to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth, that there is none who contends on my side except these, except Michael, your prince. You can be seated. You can be seated. So there's a lot going on here. A whole lot going on here that we're going to dive into today. Um, and I want to draw your attentions to some things. We want to be true to this text. Um, before we get into it today, I just want to say welcome here to Commonwealth City Church. My name is Andrew. It's good to see everyone here today. Um, some of you are I'm super familiar with. I've seen you before. Some not as familiar with. Maybe some, some first timers here or some people that haven't visited much. I just want you to know you're welcome. We're glad you're here today. Um, you picked a fun Sunday as we talk about Daniel chapter 10. And uh, all the stuff we just read, it's certainly an interesting uh, passage of Scripture. And we're going to be 
trying not to dodge much of it today. Not, not that we would ever dodge any, but, but to really kind of point out some of the things that, that we see in this text. Um, I want to draw your attention to a few different things. We're just going to dive right in. And the first one is at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 10, verse, verse 1, 2, 3. He talks about receiving a very difficult, weighty message. This is kind of an, a, an attentive focus or an attentive uh, bit that we would say could, could apply as an application. And it's this. We, like Daniel, will receive difficult, weighty mess- messages in our lifetime. We're going to receive bad news. There's, there's everyone in here. If we did a show of hands, anybody received bad news before? Everyone will be able to raise their hands. And if you can't raise your hand, then watch out, right? <laughs> because it's coming. Um, the, sometimes the Lord meets us with hard news. Daniel was met with some hard news in this dream or in this vision. And, and to be clear, it doesn't always come in the form of a dream or a vision. It could come um, with news about a job or news about your health or news about family or news about friends. It, it could come from a lots, lots of different sources. Um, but in, no matter which way hard news comes, whether it's a divine revelation through a dream or, or just through the experience in the world, tough news can come, but we have a Lord that's faithful to meet us in the hard news, right? And we see that with Daniel as well. He, he doesn't even, you know, he, he goes on a, a very specific fast for, for 21 days, um, takes him three weeks as he's working through this. And, and then there's this kind of the second little attention that we want to give to this text and it's that God takes care of Daniel. That in spite of the burden that he's shouldering and carrying for this difficult, um, difficult vision that he's seeing, and we don't really have all the details of it in Daniel chapter 10, but this difficult vision that he's see, seeing and beginning to understand that the Lord is kind to Daniel, right? Special towards him even. Sends him a messenger. Uh, sends him a messenger that has... Uh, a, a radiant appearance, but also an appearance that strikes fear in his heart. And, and this messenger meets him not with words of command or with words of rebuke or words of correction, but he says, Daniel, you are dearly loved. Isn't that a great truth for us today? That in the midst of the hard news that we get, that we carry, that we learn of, God's kindness to us is to meet us with the truth that we're greatly and dearly loved. It says that at the moment Daniel started praying, a messenger was sent to him. A messenger was sent to comfort him, to guide him, to bring him encouragement and wisdom. And the truth is that we have a God that does more than send an angel to our plight, right? We have a God that sent his son to be Emmanuel. I know it ain't Christmas season, although some of us might have already made our list, you know, no judgment. We've already started to make our Christmas list. I do that from time to time, so I'll go through the year and I'm like, I should ask for that this year because people are always like, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, I don't know. You know, so, so no judgment. But I know it's not Christmas season right now, but that concept of Emmanuel, God with us, is a truth that we can apply to our plight and to our circumstance today. Daniel had the care from an angel. We have the care from Christ himself, his spirit living within us. Even before we ever prayed, Jesus was sent to us and for us. And then we get into the last little bit of of Daniel chapter 10. And and where we're going to spend most of our time today, I, I, uh, I told Kurt earlier, I said, any Sunday that you get the opportunity to preach about territorial spirits, you know, you've got to take it. <laughs> it's a fun one. It's a fun topic to discuss. Um, and even in saying that, I know that, that there is a number of thoughts that went through people's minds in here. So I just want to say this. It's, 
It's another application of comfort. It's comforting for Daniel and it's comforting for us that the Lord and his wisdom and what, what we believe about the truths of Scripture is that this is not just a random collection of words or, or random uh, you know, words on a page that, that have managed to make it throughout history. Like We believe that the Bible, the Bible, I, I saw this music stand up here. Did they normally have the table? I saw this music stand. I was like, man, my Bible's kind of heavy. I don't want it to be like pushing this down the whole time, you know, and I hadn't tested it out before the service. So my actual... Bible is back there, and I'm, I'm, I'm half the pastor that I could be on the iPad only today. But I say all that to say that the Bible, the, the Bible is a gift to us, and it's, we believe that in the entirety of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is the divine and perfect Word of God, authoritative, um, inerrant, infallible Word of God. We believe that about the, about the Word. And so we also have to recognize that that, you know, you, Daniel probably had a number of experiences, 12 chapters, 12 chapters in, in a book of 80 plus years of living. Like there's a number of things that Daniel experienced and saw and understood and heard that didn't make the pages, right? It's not because he was forgetful. It's because the Lord didn't want it to make the pages. So it's what we believe about the scriptures, that the things that, that Daniel wrote were not just important for the day and age, but they were to transcend the day and age and also be important and impactful for us. And something about God's comfort for Daniel and his comfort um, and his care for Daniel wanted us to know what was happening in the spiritual realm in Daniel chapter 10. Okay, so, so he deemed that worthy to be in there. So we must deem it worthy to hear and to understand. The Lord wanted Daniel to know a thing or two in this section of scripture about spiritual warfare. Now you might be asking, well, Andrew, I don't see that clearly. Well, I'll just point a few things out. There's two things in there. One, we, we recognize that the messenger Daniel's talking to is an angel. Says he's buddies with Michael, who we also know is another angel, and that part of their journey was to deal with or handle for 21 days, tied up with the struggle with a prince of Persia. Now, this is not a person, um, or maybe a video game, I believe, for a little while. Prince of Persia might have been a video game. Um, this is the concept of a, of a spirit over a specific territory, at least over the area of Persia. And then there was also this allusion to, and soon the prince of Greece. Um, a spirit that is over those things. Now, now we can get into concept of territorial spirits. I, I don't. That's not really where we're going to head today. Although we are going to talk about spiritual warfare, you know. Um, but but I do think we would have to be fooling ourselves at some level if we didn't say that we've experienced in the world a certain darkness over some areas, or a certain um, historic you know understanding of of oppression or plight that, that have existed. And so it's hard for us to recognize that and, and reconcile that in our own experience at the same time of reading texts like this in Daniel chapter 10 where, where you see an angel of the Lord calling out these people over these different areas. And so that brings us to the topic today of spiritual warfare. <laughs> oh boy, right? Spiritual warfare. And listen, when I say that phrase, Every single person in here has a different example and experience and definition and even expectation of what that means. Some people are like, finally, <laughs> been waiting on this one. And some people are like, oh no, this is the Christian ghost story moment of, moment of the sermon. You know, they might, you might have already texted that like eye roll emoji. Here we go talking about Christian ghost stories. Okay, listen, I'm not trying to edit or invalidate or validate any of those experiences or any of those expectations. But I am going to invite you into what we see Jesus teach on today when he talks about how we handle the spiritual realm. 
Um, I'm not sure where you are on this topic. And if you're a first-time guest, they're like, did I really pick Devil Sunday at Commonwealth City Church? You know, <laughs> Demon Sunday at Commonwealth City Church? Um, I'm not sure where you are on this topic, but here's, here's what I've come to understand in preparing for this. If Jesus and Daniel were both very aware that the evil one was very real, then what if we treated it that way today too? What if we treated it that way? There's around 40 instances in the chapters through the Gospels, in the, ch- in the chapters of the Gospels, with Jesus' interaction with unclean spirits or, or demons, or him sending his disciples to handle such matters, right? In almost every case of those 40, you know, from the, from the man that lives in the tombs to um, the, the woman who had a, a daughter with an unclean spirit to the, to the young child that was convulsing, in, in almost every one of those circumstances, and I'm not going to dive into all of them, but almost every one of those circumstances, there's almost no formative teaching from Jesus on the spiritual realm. It's like he handles it and he moves on to the next thing. Or even the very, the very teaching that would follow up the interaction with him and an unclean spirit or him and casting out a demon is like a parable about something totally different. There's very little formative teaching on it. But he does give a few sentences here, to, here and there, mostly to showcase his divine nature. You know, he'll say some things to the, to the onlookers or he'll say some things like, you know, one time he gets accused of being the devil. And Jesus is like, well, the devil wouldn't be in conflict with himself. He wouldn't cast something out, like I'll, but the son of God would, you know, and he kind of like flexes on that a little bit. Like, I'll show you who I am. I'm the son of God. So he does that as a display of his divine nature. Even an instance where the disciples ask Jesus about it, Jesus, correct, Jesus' answer, while correct, was pretty minimal. And in some ways, almost even sarcastic. They're like, we can't cast the demon out. He's like, well, it only takes the faith the size of a mustard seed, you know. <laughs> Or, or why can't we cast this spirit out? He's like, this one requires prayer. <laughs> you know, and it's like implying that these disciples aren't praying, praying at all. You know, so it's like his answer, while correct, was still really minimal. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about being a shepherd. It's one of the I am statements through the gospel of John. And as he's talking about his role as a shepherd, I'm a good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know my voice. As he's warning, as he's talking about being a shepherd, he warns us about something else. He warns us about a thief. And he said, there is a thief that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. A little aside there, I have to always channel my Southern Kentuckian when I read that passage because I have a tremendous temptation to say steal, heal, and destroy. So it's like mental, lots of mental gymnastics here. Steal, kill, and to destroy. Now, in the context of the parable, the listener might have thought that he was talking about a specific thief or a specific kind of bandit. But we know that Jesus didn't mean a specific thief, like a a human thief. He meant the evil one, or he meant the devil. And while he's pretty silent on the subject of the devil in terms of formative teaching around one of the moments where he casts out an unclean spirit or he handles the demonic, he has one place that he talks about the evil one, that he talks about Satan with a little more formative understanding. Um, in John chapter 8, so this is, this is John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. He has this big discourse on being the bread of life. In John chapter 7, he gets into fountains of living water. He creates a stir at, at, the, at the festival of booze. Uh, Brian preached a sermon on that that is one of, one of the, my favorite sermons at Commonwealth City Church was, was Brian's exposition of John chapter 7. And I find myself going back to it time and again. Um, so thank you for that, brother. Um, 
he, he's created a stir of, of understanding where fountains of living water really come from. In John chapter 8, uh, he, has, he has dealing with being the, the light of the world, and he's kind of just continuing this, these declarations about himself, bread of life, living water, light of the world. And he has these Jewish leaders, these, these men of God, these Pharisees or Pharisees to be starting to follow him and starting to believe. And he, he says to them at one point in John chapter 8, they start to be in a discussion, and he says to them, this will be on the screen, if God were your father, you would love me. So they start to get in an interaction about uh, they're of their father, Abraham, or, or they're of their father, God. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I come not from my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You're not of God the Father. This is what he says to them. You are of your father, the devil. This is his formative teaching on the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Okay, so let's check our Christian, check our Bible trivia here. From the beginning, what's the first murder that he had a hand in? Anybody? Mm-hmm. Well, Cain and Abel was the actual murder, but, but he actually, he, Adam and Eve, right? Like they did, it was a delayed, it was a delayed poisoning, right? Like they didn't die instantly, but he was the voice. He was the voice that essentially murdered Adam and Eve. He's a murderer from the beginning. And there's a, there's a very specific even um, understanding of that slithery snake. Can't you hear it? Like, can't you hear it in his, in, through, through the hiss of his whisper? Did God really say you're going to die? Did he really say that? You know, like, can't you, can you picture it? And, and Jesus, or I'm sorry, God's response to, to the, the father's response to the snake, to the serpent, was what? Like, there's going to be strife between your offspring and her offspring forever. But one day, it's going to be a man. And he's going to crush your head, although you strike his heel. So like even that is a little insight into what Jesus is talking about here. He says, you're of your father. You're of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand on truth. Because look at this. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice that for Jesus. The devil's means to his end of destruction, which we said was to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The devil's means to his end of destruction is what? That he's a liar. It's his lies. Jesus could have said, there's a devil, he wants to destroy you, and his primary weapon is territorial oppression. Did he say that? No. His primary weapon is Paranormal activity, did he say that? No. His primary weapon is to to cripple you with fear or with even like physical manifestation. And certainly Jesus saw a lot of physical manifestation, right? Like one dude was like, you know, a crazy, you know, demonia literally called the demon maniac that lives in the tombs. But Jesus didn't say that's what we have to watch out for. He said when it comes to Satan and when it comes to his plan, his game plan for destruction for my life and yours, the way he brings it, is to lie. His native language is not power or manipulation or control. His native language is deceit. That's what he does. He's a liar and he speaks his native language. 
Now, isn't there a fun contrast there? Because we know a human being. We know a man that's both fully man, fully human, fully God, whose native language is perfect truth, compassion, kindness. There is a devil. He wants to destroy you. His primary weapon isn't strength or power or might or oppressive forces or fear or paranormal activity. His primary weapon, and when Jesus could have told us to watch out for any of his tricks and tactics or his evil acts, this primary weapon that Jesus says to watch out from, to steal from us, to kill us, and to destroy us or his, God's people is that he lies. And just to give you more evidence of this role of our enemy, I want to just, I'm, I'm, these aren't going to be on the screen. I'm just going to roll through them. Second Corinthians chapter four, Paul talks about the evil one being one that darkens the minds of those that don't believe. In Revelation chapter 12, he says that he is the deceiver of the whole world. In Matthew 13, Jesus teaching on a parable of the sower. He says that the enemy sows weeds and lies among those who believe. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, he says it takes people captive to do his own will. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about the evil one undermining and derailing missional endeavors, trying to thwart the endeavors of the mission of the kingdom of God. There's a verse in 2 Chronicles 16, chapter, verse 9. I've heard it literally a thousand times, maybe a hundred thousand times, that the Lord looks to and fro over all the earth for a heart that's loyal to him. You heard that verse before? It's a great verse. But one day I was reading in the book of Job. I actually remember hanging out in the book of Job, all 42 long, grueling chapters of the book of Job when my family was going through a season of suffering and and I wanted to believe that Job was only a four or five chapter book. It's like, you know, Job was a good guy. Bad things happened to Job. Job trusted the Lord. Job persevered. God gave it all back. That's what I wanted to believe a story of suffering is. But a story of suffering is a lot longer than five chapters. For Job, it's 42. For us, I don't know how many. But in the very first chapter of the book of Job, God has this interaction with the Satan. Hasatan is, is the, the Hebrew word. It just means the adversary. He has this conversation with him. And, and we know 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord to and fro over a heart loyal to him. But in Job chapter 1, God says, Satan, where have you been? He says, I've also been going fro to and fro all over the earth. Looking for our hearts to deceive. Now, he doesn't say looking for hearts to deceive. I'm going to add that part. That's, that's me. But, but aware of people that aren't loyal. If God's aware of people that are loyal, the enemy's clearly aware of people that aren't. And ultimately, someone to destroy. Of all the things that, that Jesus might teach us about the devil, what he teaches us is to be aware of his lies and of the destruction that comes from believing his lies. Now, everyone in here might say, well, I don't, I don't believe the lies. I, I don't believe the lies of Satan. If I would have been there in the Garden of Eden, I would have never eaten the apple or the fruit. You know, and, and I hope, I hope, that we are a people so you know, grounded and rooted and established in the truth of the gospel that we are able to push away and, and deny any lie that comes our way. But I bet we aren't as good as we think we are. Um, when it comes to believing lies, they don't always show up as uh, efforts to you know, maybe dismantle theology. You know, sure, that's part of it. But like, that's, that's not always the starting point. Sometimes the starting point is for you to even believe if you're worth loving. That's where the enemy will lie. Or as you look into the mirror, you might feel like a failure. Or you might feel unlovable. 
or as you've you know, maybe struggled in a specific sin, as you're walking away from it or processing it, it's feelings of shame. You could never, if people knew, they would never trust you. You know, it's those kinds of things. I, I have a, a list of some lies that, that people might believe. They'll be up on the screen. Things like, I'm unlovable. How can anyone love me? I've done this or that. If, if someone knew, if anyone ever found out, they wouldn't love me again. Or, or it's even this. Everyone that's loved me has loved me for a reason. But they found a reason not to. Anybody have that story? People have found reasons not to love you? That love was conditional? I know that, that in, in doing a lot of work in, in some different segments of, of our city, places of our city, especially areas where, where there's uh, been a lot of family brokenness, you know, you interact with young people that, that maybe have been conditioned to believe that love has to be conditional. And when someone tries to offer unconditional love, they'll test it. Ever met anybody like that? They'll test it. We do the same thing because we believe sometimes that there's got to be some condition that we weren't loved. And if God were to find that out or if somebody else were to find out, they wouldn't love us either. I'm unacceptable. Do you know my past? Do you know my struggles? If you really did, You would never listen to me. You would never befriend me. You would never come to my house. You would never want to hang out. I know it. When I see myself in the mirror, that's what I think. I'm unworthy. I have no value. Or I would have value if I had this, or I had this, or I had this. That's how that lie might show up. Another one could be, it all depends on me. It's kind of the mentality of, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. It all depends on me. It's an easy way to get mad at a coworker. It's an easy way to get mad at a spouse or children. Uh, it all depends on me, you know, and that life starts to sneak in. And that you'll start to believe that your faith also all depends on you. You'll start to believe that your ability to provide also all depends on you. Um, I'm a failure. That's a lie that we believe. And, it, and again, this, the enemy say, Andrew, you're a failure, believe it. No, he doesn't say it that way. You know how he says it to me? You can't even keep your garage clean. See, I'm serious. You can't even keep... <laughs> Matt knows. You can't even keep your garage clean. How are you supposed to lead a family? You can't even clean up. You've still got the Christmas boxes out, Andrew. How are you supposed to care for the hearts of a 9 and 10-year-old? You can't even take care of the... That's how he slithers in, sneaks in and hisses into my life, is I don't have my house even aesthetically the way I want it. I don't have my finances in order. I'm a failure as a dad, as a provider, as a husband. Things happen in our budget that we weren't ready for. And everybody else always seems ready for the pitfall. But we weren't because I'm a failure. I don't have the appearance that I desire. When I look into the mirror, I remember there was a formative moment for me in student ministry. I took a group of of students to Chicago on a mission trip. Seventh and eighth graders. Lots of prayers around that. Um, And we... We stayed at a church or stayed at a location out from the city. We took the train in. If you've ever taken the train in from, from kind of the suburbs to, to downtown Chicago, you really, you go underground at some point and you can't really see all of your surroundings. Can't see all the huge buildings that you happen to be around. And then when you come up out of the subways, we did this around like Michigan Avenue. When you come up out um, to get into the city, it's like, you know, it's like these huge buildings. And, you know, a lot of the, the architecture is like mirrored glass and whatnot on the outside. And I remember I wasn't, one of my other student leaders, volunteers, was in the front of the line. I was always the last one off the subway to make sure that all, we also got every last seventh and eighth grader. 
Um, and so I was in the back of the line. We were walking up the steps, and I watched 40 consecutive middle schoolers walk past a mirrored building, and every single one of them look at themselves in the mirror and either adjust something about themselves or have a, have a disappointed look on their face because of what they saw in the mirror. And it's, those are the ways that he lies. That when, you know, for those of you that are parents, like you look at your kids and like every time you see them, you see them as, as beautiful as you possibly can. But sometimes your kids will look in the mirror and they'll hear, they'll hear. Right now they'll hear it at seven or eight years old. Satan didn't wait for them to be 25. Be like, I don't know why your mom or dad think you're beautiful. Why would they think that? We hear those things. Oh, we hear that now. We hear that now when we look at our appearance. We look at our schedule. We look at our finances. We see that we're a failure. We look at our unclean garage. We feel that I'm, that's how he lies to me. Other lies like, I have too much fear to really be faithful. I can never get over those fears. Or I can never overcome my anxiety. Lies like, I'm too weak. Or I'm not smart enough. No one really wants me. No one would pick me. Everyone has something special about them, but I don't. God wouldn't want to hear from me. These are the lies that we hear. And sometimes these lies manifest in categories even more personally. If you make a parenting mistake, you'll believe the lie instantly. You're going to ruin their lives. You're going to wound your kids. Any parent ever struggle with that? I know I'm going to wound my kids. I'm going to be a bad parent. And it's not the Holy Spirit telling you those things. Or if my kids don't get into the right school or with the right friends or in the right sports or in the right scenarios in life, then you're a bad mom or dad and God won't be pleased with you. That's how he hisses around. He doesn't just come out and say, you're a bad dad, believe it. He says, if you were a good dad, they'd have better lessons for the sport they play. That's how he says it. If they were a good dad, they'd have nicer this or that. Your happiness is the most important thing. That's a lie from the enemy. For you to chase your happiness over everything. What's the holy word of God say? For you to chase your holiness over anything. Not your happiness. God cares way more about your holiness than he cares about your happiness. And if you join God and care about your holiness, you know what I promise? That you'll be satisfied and happy. It's funny how that works. My success. This was one I confessed here the, the week back in February. My success is determined by my performance. Remember me confessing that one? I believed that my success as a husband, as a parent, as a person, as a pastor, is, is 100% in line with how I perform or what I do. And so according to Jesus, it's lies like these that are the primary weapon for our enemy. So how do we combat it? How do we combat it? Do we just say, I don't believe that? Stop it. No, 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 no. You know, we do one of those to Satan. La, 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 la. How do we combat these lies? Well, Jesus gave us the way to do that too. He says we combat these lies with truth. John 8, 31 through 32 and 36, it'll be on the screen. It says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It's also a little shout out of John 15. And you will know the truth, and look at this, the truth will do what? Set you free. And then verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free, maybe? You'll be free when you get it, right? No, you'll be free indeed. It doesn't say, that you'll know the truth and the truth might set you free. It says, you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, if He sets you free to believe His truth over the enemy's lies, then you will be free indeed. And we don't just, we do expect the Holy Spirit to do that to our lives, but we also do that for one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, 
the Apostle Paul's writing. Uh, this is really the, the early, one of the early manifestos of a church. And he says that, that our role toward one another is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or human cunning or craftiness in a deceitful scheme. Who would be crafty in a deceitful scheme? The enemy. Rather, we speak the truth. And we know the truth is a person. So we speak Jesus in love to each other. Some people use this verse as like the, the biblical example of saying um, you can say something mean on purpose, but say I'm speaking the truth in love. You know, like, hey, or, or it's kind of like with, with all due respect, you know, with all due respect, your haircut's not very good. You know, like, what? You can't just be outright mean to somebody. This is not what this verse means. It's not a, this is not a disclaimer for you to say something harsh in love. What this verse means is we speak Jesus in love to each other to grow everyone up into the things of Christ. That's our, that's our commitment to one another as the family of God as we speak the truth of Christ to the places that we struggle to believe or to the places that we so easily believe the lies of the enemy so that we can denounce those and trust and turn and trust the Lord and grow up every way in our life, in our parenting, in our marriage, in our relationships, in our work, in our play, in our recreation, in our personal interactions to grow up every way into Christ. And we do that by hearing and responding to the truth of Jesus and not being moved or motivated by the lies of the enemy. So we go back and let's read some of these lies now with some truth underneath them. I am unlovable. What's the word God say about that? God demonstrated his love for you in this, that when you were still sinner at your absolute worst, Christ died for you. It's Romans 5, 8. I'm unacceptable. But in John 15, Jesus says, I don't call you servant. I call you a friend and I choose you and I appoint you so that you might bear fruit. It's what he says to you. It's what he says to me. I have no value. I'm unworthy. Now Jesus says, now the Holy Word of God says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were bought with a price and your, your body is a temple that's inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. That sounds pretty valuable to me. If you've ever read in the Old Testament all the intricacies and value around the temple, God says, I know there's one thing in the world that's more valuable than the old school, Old Testament temple of God, and that's the human body. That's why we care so much about life. That's why we care about unborn. It's because the human body is the most valuable piece of property. Well, that's maybe a bad terminology. We're more than property. But like, it's the most valuable vessel, there you go, that the Lord would want to inhabit is a human soul. It's not gold or silver or brick and mortar. What about this? It depends on me. Colossians 1, it says it doesn't depend on you. Colossians 1, 17 says, in him all things are held together. Not you. You don't hold anything together. I'm a failure. Romans 8, 37 would say, now actually, in all these things, you're more than conquerors through him who has loved us. I have too much fear to really be faithful. Really? Isaiah 41, 10 says, fear not for I am you. I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or, I've got these. These aren't on the screen, but Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and sal my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 32, 7, you are my hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I can never overcome my anxiety. Psalm 4 says, well, in peace, you can both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. I can't ever construct a scenario that I lie down in safety. But you, O oh Lord, can make me dwell in safety. We could go on and on and on. We, re we defeat the lies of the evil one with the truth of Jesus and the word 
of God. And to tie all this back into Daniel 10, you know, we stepped out of that a little bit, talking about spiritual warfare. To tie this back into Daniel 10, the evidence of God fighting spiritual forces with his angels and messengers was certainly there. And listen, I am sure that that still happens. I don't understand. Paul, Paul says that, that the spiritual realm is actually more real than the physical realm. He, he, he encourages us to, to be armed and to armor ourselves because our battle is not against, our fight's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and, 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 and spiritual forces of an unseen world. Okay, so I don't want to acknowledge, I don't, wanna, I don't want anyone to think that I'm like trying to demean that or demote that. There is evidence of God fighting spiritual forces with angels and messengers all around. And that happened both in Daniel's time. And there's no reason for me to believe that doesn't happen today. However, the primary weapon God has to defeat the works of the enemy is not an angel. It's Jesus. It's a cross and an empty grave. That's the primary weapon that he defeats the work of the evil one. Martin Luther said this about Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12. He said, Daniel concludes the record of his terrifying visions and dreams on a note of joy, pointing to the coming of Christ's eternal reign of glory. Whoever wants to study them profitably dare not focus their attention on the details of his visions and dreams, but should seek comfort in the Savior Jesus Christ, whom they portray, and the deliverance he brings from sin and misery. Daniel was comforted by the fact that God sent a messenger to fight a spiritual battle over him, one that he couldn't fight for himself. But we, friends, are comforted by God sending Jesus, the one who executes war on our behalf against the evil one. And his sufficient, finished work gives us both daily and eternal, personal and practical victory over anything and everything the enemy might throw at us. Now you can choose to be formed by your experiences and your emotions and the, and the lies that you believe, or you can choose to be formed by the finished work of God and his word. And we hope and we proclaim that there is more formation to happen in the spiritual realm of your life by the finished work of Jesus and the holy word of God than there is anything you might have experienced or feel or recognized else on the world. Here's what I know as we look to the gospel, as Martin Luther instructed us. Here's where it leaves our enemy. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Are there still territorial spirits? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Have to ask the Lord. Here's what I do know about them, though. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And here's how he did it. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with illegal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here's what I know about the territorial spirits or any spirits of the evil one today. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There might be Still, and there are still, you know, forces of darkness in the world. But man, they don't bite like they used to. They don't scratch and claw like they used to. They don't sting. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says, they don't sting at all like they used to. Oh, death, where, where are you, where are you, where's your gloat? Where's your sting? We have a Savior that did more against the forces of evil than Michael and this messenger to Daniel did against the prince of Persia and Greece. He disarmed him forever. The battle belongs 
to our Lord. And that means that when we find ourselves, and again, I, I don't know what your experience is in this world, and I don't want to undermine or demean or invalidate anything. But what I do know is that when we come on the side of Christ, we enter a, almost like a spiritual war finished rather than a spiritual warfare. That in the person and work of Jesus, the battle's won. And he's conquered and been vict- victorious over it. And so here's kind of our exercise to close. I, I know that that growing up, my, my dad, a faithful, faithful man, lived in this world of truth and lies and the lies we believe and how they manifest into our behavior. And, and most churches, most people, most discipleship efforts really tried to modify behavior rather than they do try to speak to the lies we believe that produce the behavior that's in need of modification. Are you with me? Most people try to hang out there as opposed to the truth and the lie compartment. And so growing up as a kid, he would ask me to the point of annoyance. He does it still, 38 years old. What, what am I hearing from the Lord? What are you feeling about yourself? You know, I have a bad day as a, as a dad or a husband and just be an idiot and I'll call dad. He'll be like, well, what are you hearing? And I'm like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> but I'll answer. And he's like, is that of the Lord? You know, it's like this. And then he says this phrase. If you process that, and that phrase, process that, I know what that means for me. That means I'm supposed to, to even write out, like, what am, I, what am I believing that's potentially untrue about me? What am I believing that's untrue about the Lord? What am I believing that's untrue about my walk with Jesus? Um, and, and then to take that to the world, what, what would the Holy Spirit say to these things? Would he, would he agree with these things? Or would he speak a correction over these things? And that's how I process. And I, I don't know how you do that, or if you've ever even been invited into this, but But here's what I want to ask you. I would ask you, is there a tendency for you to believe lies? But I already know the answer to that. The answer is yes. There is a tendency for you to believe the lies of the evil one. So how's this? In your family group or in your friendships, maybe it's one or two people, maybe your spouse, maybe even your kids. Help each other point out things that you might be wrongly believing about the Lord, about yourself. And then don't be the Holy Spirit for the other person. Okay, this is, this is the hardest thing to do. If somebody tells you, I think I'm believing this true. I think I'm believing this and I don't know if it's true. I have a tendency to just correct them. And that's great. But you know what's better? When the Holy Spirit that lives in them corrects them. And this is actually, now I believe this about you. Takes them on a journey to the word. Be a sounding board. Be an agent of, of, of reconciliation there. Like help point them to some place in scripture. You can even say in your wisdom, like if somebody's, so some of the verses that we, we walk through today, if somebody's believing they're not valuable, it's like, hey, why don't you go read the, the last few verses of First Corinthians chapter six and like, what does what your heart say? What does that say to your heart? But, but try not to be the Holy Spirit for other people. Try to help ask them questions to where they might hear from the Holy Spirit. And again, they have to believe in Jesus for that to happen, right? Like they have to, for the Holy Spirit to be living in them, they have to believe and, and trust Jesus, we believe that, but let him speak to that. Or in our family groups or in our friendships, like how would we point out or, or at least leverage truth to combat some of those lies? I just want to invite you into that exercise. Maybe you've never done that. Context your family. Maybe, you're, maybe you have a van ride coming up. Um, you know, you can turn off the tablets, talk a little bit about things like this. Or, or when things come up, you know, like your son or daughter has a bad game and their sport that they're playing. And the world just ended, right? I remember those days. Like I remember striking out looking 
feeling like I was a failure and a disappointment. Okay, it was second grade Little League, right? It was a pitch machine, okay? Like, it's not the end of the world. But man, it didn't feel that way at age eight. Felt very real. Felt like I'd let everybody down. And right then, right then, like the enemy speaks, plays Little League too. And would, would say what I, my fear as a teammate would say. But I had to go to truth. I had to trust truth. So, so help your kids with that. Help each other. You might, when, when bad news comes, Daniel chapter 10, when bad news comes, don't let it be a microphone for the evil one. Let it be a microphone for the manifestations of truth in Jesus. And then lastly, we go to communion. This is how we close today. We go to the table. And, and we come to this all the time. This table is for, for those of us that confess and believe in Jesus. Um, we're supposed to examine ourselves as someone that trusts the Lord, as someone that, that, that says, that, you know, Lord, if you were to judge me, like you would, you would see Jesus in my place. Examine ourselves. But we also come to this table in remembrance, life, death, resurrection, his body and blood broken and shed for us. But remembrance that he's the grace we need. He is. He's the source of truth that we claim. Last week, we heard a testimony on this stage during this service about a young man who was battling um, different beliefs about obsessive compulsive disorder. And he said, you know, uh, the remedy for OCD is faith. Well, the remedy for any doubt that we face is faith. And there are going to be days that you doubt you're, you're being able to even deserve to take of this. There are going to be days that you doubt your ability to even be able to pray. There are going to be days that you doubt, you doubt that the Lord even loves you. But do you know what the remedy for your doubt is? It's faith in Jesus. It's faith that he says, I still went to that cross for you. I still defeated death in the grave for you. I still believe these things. This is still my opinion of you. You're still my dearly loved son or daughter. So we come to communion. We come to the table. We take it in remembrance, but we take it in confidence that he's the grace we need. The remedy to our doubts, worries, and unbelief is cheers to the Lord. Faith, thank you. We remember your life, death, and resurrection, your body and blood broken and shed for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for uh, just inviting us on this journey of truth and lies. While we scratch the surface today, Lord, I pray that, that you, your spirit, just kind of take the baton and, that you initiated and, and run with it. Teach us and train our hearts um, to believe you, to trust you uh, in the face of our doubts, in the face of our fears, in the face of the lies that we so easily give ear to. Um, and may we as a people work Work in accordance with you to agree that the enemy really is dismantled. That he doesn't have no weapon formed against me from him shall prosper. Um, and that we can put our faith and trust in you. Lord, as we go to this table, um, remind us it's the grace we need. It's in your name we pray. Amen.